doing good you went on a little adventure didn't you uh, on a boat oh man yeah almost two weeks on a boat in the um in the north pacific off the coast wow. of northern southeast alaska wow so it's really south alaska the gulf of alaska yeah, I, right yeah it's the gulf of alaska i get confused northern southeast uh, yes southern northern and was anyways. this a, a rowboat or a little skiff uh, it was an army tea boat, about seventy-eight feet long. Wow. Uh, there were there were six of us on board, and uh, three of them were paleontologists. Really? And uh, and, and well, I know oh, Doctor no, Kirk Johnson was on was on that trip with you. That's right, Paul Murphy and uh, Jason Hicks. They are paleontologists, and I guess I'm a paleontologist. Right? Of course you are. Of course you are. What did you discover? Did you they find actually any cool told fossils? Me. They told me I was a paleontologist too. We found. Uh, wait, 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 wait. Hold on a second. Back in the Karen Shin episode, I believe we <laughs> determined that you are not only a coprolite holder, but you're also a paleontologist. Oh, I got a lot of coprolites in my head, is what I got, man. But uh, <laughs> in in my britches. But anyways, I uh, I yeah, I could talk paleo with the best of them, I guess. But it was it was great. We did find some cool stuff. TBD, like? TBD, still okay. was couple of mystery Give me fossils a hint. mystery fossils one of them is like uh we have no idea what it is man so uh kirk okay, is, asking is it a around. shell is it a uh, stick is it a piece of <laughs> what is it it's it's in, it's in marine sediment so right. it's a, in a concretion right so we found concretions we found crab concretions along oh, the way we found cool. many clams and and, and, and the know, mystery fossil snails. is it a shell it looks it kind of looks like a shell but it looks like maybe a sea urchin or maybe a sea fan right, or right, some right. sort of bryozoan. and how old is this how old is the set we were basically in eocene or oligocene rocks along the coast oh. there so we were hoping to bump into a marine mammal but so uh, we're talking 47 to 28 million well, years ago yeah 30 ish million years ago wow Wow, yeah. that's a long time. It's a long, long time, and a long time to be on a boat with, <laughs> with yeah, uh, five pondering. other guys. But it was great. I slept in the wheelhouse. Yeah, I know because of your snoring. My terrible, your snoring. indomitable <laughs> snoring. It has been compared to uh, a dying Albertosaurus, is what I sound <laughs> like. But anyways, go ahead. Yes, I've been contemplating time, deep time, what? short time. Well. My son went to college. I'm an empty nester, so I have a lot of time now. And oh, I'm, I'm reevaluating right. my time. My dog passed away. I'm, I'm, I walked the halls of my empty house, lonely and sad. But I'm able to ponder time. And I was thinking <laughs> that we humans probably had the ability to create our own fire 200,000 years ago. The cave paintings at Lascaux in Europe are like 40,000 years ago. Some of them are, yeah, 40,000. Australian Aborigines possibly tra transferred from uh, Java, Indonesia, to the Australian continent 70, 80,000 years ago. And then you just said you were in Eocene sediment 30 million years ago. Do you know how many periods of 200,000 years that is? That is so, so long ago, right? And then when you think about the Permian, when was the Permian? 250 million years ago. It's, how many 200,000-year yeah, yeah. segments is that? So it, 
It I know. Just, it's mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing. It is mind-blowing. It is mind-blowing. Our lives are so in, in, insignificant. We were in mostly Oligocene rocks, though. They're 30 million years-ish. Right. But yeah, Eocene is more like 50, Dave. But um, anyways, I can't help myself. It was great. We found cool stuff. Uh, a lot of camaraderie, and uh, perhaps an episode will come out of it. Cool. And uh, Dr. Cool. Johnson says he loves our show, and he'd like to be back who? on with us sometime. Who? Who? Dr. That Johnson? Kirk guy. Dr. Oh, Johnson. Is he, oh, he's the one that has the one-shot vaccine? Oh, no. Sorry. That's Johnson <laughs> and Johnson. <laughs> that's right. I got my two, and uh, I'm looking for a third, man. Yeah. But I talked to my pharmacist. He said he can't hook me up till later. Yeah. Well, I got my one, and I'll probably get a booster later. But anyway, uh, who is our guest today? We have an amazing, someone you know, and someone who uh, has worked with Pat Druckenmiller, who's up in yes. Fairbanks. Yes, that's right. We talked about uh, Greg Erickson a few episodes ago. We mentioned that we might have him on, and he's on. Today. It's kind of odd because he's he's at Florida State University, but he studies uh, polar dinosaurs, and he's been going up to the Colville River. Wait, I went with him. He studies in everything. Alaska. Well, he studies everything. He studies crocodilians, and there are crocodilians I, in Florida. So, I, Yeah, right. And I, I know that you'd be excited to, about his crocodile work, having your – you had your terrifying crocodile experience yes, in yes, Australia. I, I won't bring that up. But, um, you know, he did do these bite meters, and we'll talk about it with him. And about, I'm, I'm – yeah. He captured, I, I, he captured the, the most pounds per square inch uh, of any land animal. He, he holds that record – of of actually getting that croc to bite it but yeah we'll talk yeah. to him about that it's, uh, it's pretty crazy it's pretty cool and you know i went to the colville river with him and we'll ask oh, him about some of the adventures yeah yeah he was oh he that was, was you kirk was that you kirk and greg yeah greg erickson uh, pat druckenmiller was there too uh, so, oh wow. yeah and another fellow by the name of kevin may so who's quite fantastic all right, well, but, let's uh, uh, let's get into it. Adventures. Let's talk to him and get into it and uh, dial up and let's talk to Greg Erickson, who is... Let's talk to him. Yeah, well, he's down in Florida, and I'll introduce him to you. Great. Hey, Dave, meet Greg Erickson, professor of anatomy and vertebrate paleobiology at Florida State University. He's also the curator at the Florida State University Biological Science Museum and the co-director of the Arctic Paleontological Research Consortium. Greg, it is so cool to see you again, man. It's been like nine years, I think, oh, coming up on 10 years since uh, we had adventures uh, way up north a long time ago. Yeah. No, it's great to see you. You haven't aged a bit, so you're well-preserved as... <laughs> yeah, nor you, you're, sir. You're well, I'm good. You're well-preserved, as we say in my field. And, uh, and David, nice to meet you. My pleasure, Greg. Yeah, I've uh, read... Uh, my God, you have, you've done so many different studies from crocodilians to hadrosaurs. It's, uh, it's amazing. But the question is, Thank you. Greg, are you a paleo-nerd? Uh, huh? Fess <laughs> up, dude. He paused! He paused! Well, I well, I like I, I was asking my wife about that. Am I a nerd? I guess I am at some level. Yes. Uh, do I love paleo? Absolutely. Okay. So, so I, that's I, I think I might. I think I just barely qualify. Two, two together there. So you are a paleo nerd. I'm a paleo nerd. Yes. I don't want to admit <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah, we uh, we spent almost a week in the Colville River all those years ago. But you know, I didn't ask you a lot about your childhood. Where, where did this nerddom start? Where, where did you grow up? Uh, I was born in Anchorage, Alaska. My dad was uh, the regional director of fish and uh, fish and wildlife in yeah. Anchorage. 
So, and he was an expert on bears. So I, I grew up catching bears and things like that. So, what? Yeah. yeah I, what then, year? What, wait, what year did you graduate high school? You, it, well, I moved, I, I mostly grew up in Seattle ultimately. Right, but, right. Uh, he, was a, he ended up being a professor at University of Washington. And uh, What years were you in Anchorage? Uh, just when I was little. Like, so we're talking the 30s and 40s? <laughs> Back in the Pleistocene. <laughs> But yeah, I, I've six. forgotten that you're a, you're a fellow Alaskan, really. You were born yes, here. Yes, I am. And then uh, when I was reading, uh, you you have the rare opportunity to have had a polar bear as a pet. I read about Snowflake. Yes. What? Yeah, that's <laughs> true. Yeah, so my dad, uh, he uh, rescued a, a polar bear that uh, the mom, uh, I can't remember, it was either the mom wasn't feeding it at a zoo or, or the mom got shot. I can't remember. Um, I was only three. But uh, yeah, we had a pet polar bear uh, named Snowflake, and uh, <laughs> my father had done some work in his master's figuring out what you could add to cow's milk. He worked with a chemist to make it so you could still feed a baby bear and have it live in a zoo or, or whatnot. And uh, so yeah, we had this bear for about six months, and then- At the house. Uh, we went out- In your home? Yeah. Yes, sir. And then we, uh, we, we, uh, we went out to dinner, I guess, one night and came back and it had torn off all the cabinets of our entire house. Oh, my goodness. And so my mom uh, said the bear's got to go. And so ultimately yeah. it went to a zoo in, uh, in Canada and it was there like 22 years later still or something like that. I, I need to look up whatever happened to Snowflake. Well, you don't want to have a pet chimpanzee. They tear off other things. <laughs> well, our cat was a bobcat. So we had a bobcat. Wow. And a, what? Yeah, so we had a bobcat, a Springer Spaniel, and a polar bear. So I'm not making this up. Wow. <laughs> so, That's crazy. Wow. So, but so. you eventually, you ended up down in Seattle. And I've, like I said, I've been reading some of your bio. And you then were, you eventually went to UW, right? As yes, sir. an engineering student? Uh, no, I was a geology major. So, okay. Uh, that's uh, that's basically where I got introduced to. Uh, I mean, I, as a kid, I always liked dinosaurs and fossils and things like that. Oh, so you are a paleo nerd. He is. He is. Yeah. He is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It just got rekindled. Uh, so my my undergrad advisor was John Rensberger, a mammal paleontologist. Oh, yeah. He kind of took he took me under his wings and took me out in the field, and uh, he. He picked up on the fact that I was, I had a lot of knowledge about biology from being my dad's kid. And then I had an engineering interest. I started off as an aer aeronautical okay. engineering major. And he just said, you could really make an impact in this field if you put, you know, that kind of integration together. And so he encouraged me to do it. Uh, I ignored him. Uh, <laughs> and I was, a, I was a construction worker for about a year and a half trying to figure out what to do. Uh, and I got tired of getting rained on, and I decided I'm going to go take the GRE. And so I got into grad school, and I became Jack Horner's grad student at Montana State. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, I, yeah so I did my master's there, and then I went to to Berkeley uh, in integrative biology, uh, and uh, and then ultimately uh, I was a postdoc in bioengineering at Stanford. So I, in the end, I kind of did all the things I wanted to do. Uh, working on, I get to work on animals, I work on fossils, uh, and I do engineering. Wow. So the the dinosaur moment happened. I mean, you weren't really a paleo freak as a kid. You love dinosaurs, as all kids do. But uh, it wasn't until, you know, you were in this, you took a geology class. And somewhere it says that you also went out and found a triceratops skull during a class in your junior year. Yeah, that was with Dr. Rensberger. Yeah, no, I was I was definitely a paleo nerd till I was about twelve years of age, okay. and then I got I got interested in other things. Uh, I wanted to be a pilot, things like that. Uh, but uh, I always had an interest in fossils and uh, geology, so that's why I got a geology degree. And 
it was just it was I just didn't think it was possible to get a job in this field. And and Dr. Rensberger you know, really encouraged me. And thank God he did. I wouldn't be talking to you right now if it wasn't for John. So oh, that's I, cool. So what what is this uh, Triceratops skull? How how complete was it? Oh, it was it was, it was about a. Oh, the skull is about 60% complete. It's at the Burke Museum now. So we dug that up when I oh. went out. He took me out in the field, and uh, I found that. We dug it up. So that was really my first real expedition. Do you know, gentlemen, there is a Triceratops that is on the auction block, I think, today. Yeah, I saw that. Uh, so I don't have $1.6 to bid for it. Mm. <laughs> yeah, they are fairly common. And they are found on private land, so it is possible to buy one. But uh Jack Corner uh, got you thinking about stuff. You were you got your PhD there with no, you got your PhD later at Berkeley, but you were working with Jack. So somewhere in there, this idea of trying to figure out how old dinosaurs were, and you ended up aging a T Rex, right? That was yes, the big turn. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. So so Jack had this. Uh, one of his mottos was he wasn't really interested in how the dinosaurs died. Everybody was really interested in the extinction of dinosaurs. And he said he didn't really care about that. He just wanted to know how they lived. And I like that, uh, you know, trying to bring dinosaurs to life. And so he really instilled that in me. Uh, and, uh, you know, one of the big mysteries was uh, how old dinosaurs were, uh, their growth rates, these sorts of things, which are also pertinent to their physiology, whether they're warm-blooded or cold-blooded. Uh, so ultimately, I got permission to cut up Sue. So this is the $8.65 million <laughs> Tyrannosaur that the Field Museum had. And so uh, I told them I thought I could age it. And they, uh, after about six months of debating among the curators, they decided to let me give it a shot. And so, yeah, we figured out, uh, you know, Tyrannosaurus probably only lived to about 30 years of age. And it, but from what bone did you pull the histology from, the, the little section? Uh, there was a bunch of pieces, uh, parts of the, uh, some of the ribs, uh, part of the pubis, one of the hip bones, uh, fibula. Is there a better bone to, that you can see the growth rings of a skeleton? Yeah, I think the... I think the pubis is good, one of the hip bones, and then the fibula, which is uh, you know the shin bone on the on, you know the side of your shin. Uh, those are bones that are not hollowed out. So carnivorous dinosaurs have hollowed out bones developmentally, so they erase the growth lines. So I found some of these bones, like the ribs and the pubis and the fibula, and the fibula in particular is really good. Uh, that basically recorded the entire uh, history of the animal. Are they like growth rates? Oh. Can you see them like a tree, like one year, two years, just a matter of counting them? Or yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's, it's it's very much like uh, aging a tree. It takes a lot of work to get the uh, you know get a microscope slide that shows that. But yes, it's uh, it's 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 sort of easy. But uh, <laughs> not did, did you use an extant animal uh, as a comparative anatomy to look at the growth rings? Yeah, that's a good question. So I tested the method on uh, alligators that I knew the age of and showed that those bones were perfectly fine. Up till then, people were cutting the femur, the thigh bone, but that's really hollow on a tyrannosaur. So it's most of the growth lines are gone. So I was able to show that some of these other bones uh, work, work as, as effectively. Uh, and that was really the breakthrough that allowed us to figure out how, you know, how T-Rex grew up and uh, and the findings were fascinating. I mean, when I started the study, people thought Tyrannosaurus rex, you know, lived to 200 years or something like that. <laughs> uh, and so it kind of just put, put it in context with living animals. Uh, it put on about five and a half pounds uh, of mass per day, which per uh, day. basically shows that. Yeah. So it shows what? like. 
Yeah, so it shows the Atkins diet doesn't work. So, but you're talking about what a what a, a three thousand pound individual? How much would a T Rex have weighed? Oh, maybe fifteen thousand like pounds. Sue. About fifteen. Oh, 000. really? Yeah. No. Oh, Sue would have been fifteen thousand, all fleshed out with a full stomach. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, it was a fifteen thousand pound Roadrunner from wow. hell. <laughs> Roadrunner from wow. hell. I love it, man. Yeah. Wow. Such a big beast. So you turned your your attention then to other dinosaurs, and you know, I, when I first met you, uh, you were introduced to me as well. The guy knows a lot about uh, T Rex histology and how they, the the growth rates, but also as the duck billed dinosaur guy. You tumbled into the world of hadrosaurs, the duck-billed dinosaurs. Did you apply the same growth rate curiosity to those beasts as well? Uh, yes and no. I, uh, so it was kind of funny when I when I was Jack Horner's graduate student. He loved duck-billed dinosaurs. He just like, I want to go find a duck. I don't want to find a tyrannosaur, you know. <laughs> and uh, so I pretended I wasn't interested in them, but which which isn't true. Uh, I'm fascinated with their dentition. These animals had 1,400 teeth in their jaws. And I was interested in how they, uh, you know, why did they have so many teeth? And so I was able from growth lines, uh, daily growth lines, to figure out how rapidly they shed their teeth, how... Teeth growth line. Yeah. Yeah, there's daily growth lines in the teeth, and you can count those up, and you can figure out how long it took the tooth to develop. If you look at the replacement tooth behind, you get the replacement rate. Once you have that, you can also figure out the wear rates. So they were wearing down their teeth at about a millimeter a day. Uh, so I, I've just been... In, really fascinated by their dentition more than their growth. I'm curious about that, the tooth batteries themselves. So all these lines of teeth are moving. Do they actually shed the teeth or do they just wear them down and they're gone and yeah. the next one moves in? Yeah, so at, at each tooth position, they shed a tooth about every 50 to 80 days. And so uh, I think I calculated one time that they put out about uh, 3,300 teeth per year. So, I mean, back in the, back in the Cretaceous, the, the tooth fairy was completely broke. <laughs> well, I have a question. So if they're shedding a millimeter of dentition a day, wouldn't that represent, be represented in the coprolites of those animals? That type, there may be calcium or some sort of teeth material. I mean, obviously it would be like a paste. It wouldn't be chunks of teeth. It would be, Right. Uh, yeah, well, they were shedding the teeth, so they probably didn't it didn't, didn't end up in their body. Uh, so the fecal matter. But you say you're saying it ground down a millimeter a day, so they're yeah. using plant material to grind down their teeth. Yes. So that would be uh, several ounces or a pound of pulverized tooth material with the plant they're eating. Would that be representational in the coprolite? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yes. So some of the calcium and phosphate would end up in the in the fecal matter, although it wouldn't look like teeth. Uh, of course. But, but they'd eventually shed a plug of their tooth. Just the root of it would would shed. And so we right, we right. find we find hundreds, if not thousands, of shed teeth. You know, when we're out in the field. Yeah, you around. know, I remember when we landed on the Colville River and uh, we started walking along the riverbank. It wasn't too long before you actually picked up uh, a chunk of hadrosaur jaw and showed that to me. And I have a picture of you doing that. You held it up to me. But it's a whole row. Would those entire rows fall out at one time? Or would they shed like a row? Or is well, they like... look like mammoth. They look like little miniature mammoth teeth, but not. Well, sort of like so... uh, corn cobs, you know, in a way. It's like a row of corn would fall off. Uh, but you held one up and there was an entire row. 
Yeah, the way, the way it works is their teeth would erupt and uh, they're, they're, they're out of sequence in development. So it's like this tooth would shed and then another one a little bit further down the row and another one down the row. So they wouldn't shed them all at once. They were just each, right. each tooth row would shed one out about every 50 to 80 days. But they were staggered a little bit. So they always had a, a grinding battery to work with. Now, you gentlemen mentioned the Colville River. I stood on the the huge banks, the western bank of that river last night in Google Earth. <laughs> Maybe you can explain to our listeners exactly where it is, how far from the Beaufort Sea, where exactly the Prince Creek Formation is, which I looked on Macrostat as well. So I walked through it last night, but tell our radio listeners where this is, how you got there, and exactly in relation to Alaska. Yeah, maybe, so it's maybe a little oh, mention too about the background of the Liscombe bone bed, Greg. So explain it all, man. <laughs> yeah, so uh, back in the late '60s, uh, an oil company was out there looking for oil in Alaska. Imagine that, uh, and they <laughs> came across uh, along the Colville River. So the Colville River dumps into the Beaufort Sea or the Arctic Ocean, uh, and about 25 miles from the Beaufort Sea, there uh, they started finding some bones and. The oil company brought them back, and they thought they were woolly mammoth bones, of all things. So something lived, you know, a million years ago to tens of thousands of years ago, uh, which suggests maybe their uh, search for oil was a little off in terms of time, because the, the formation there is actually 70 million years old. But anyway, uh, a geologist was shown the, the fossils and said, those aren't, those aren't woolly mammoth bones, those are dinosaur bones. And so this... this uh, Caught the attention of the University of California, Berkeley in particular, and also the University of Alaska Museum of the North and uh, in Fairbanks. And they basically teamed up and started doing expeditions up there. And uh, so, so I saw some of those material when I was a graduate student at Berkeley, and I was very intrigued by, you know, Alaskan dinosaurs. It's crazy. What happened was Pat Druckenmiller, my research partner uh, at the University of Alaska, he, uh, he became the curator there. And I approached him about doing some research up there to try to figure out not just who's up there, but why are they up there? How are they up there? Uh, and so we've been working up there for over a decade now as part of the Arctic Paleontological Research Consortium. And we're basically just trying to figure out uh, you know, how dinosaurs lived under snowy conditions part of the year. How do they survive four to five months of complete polar darkness? Uh, most of the trees were deciduous. There wasn't much plant matter in the winter. Uh, so it, it's a natural test of dinosaur physiology. So that's, you know, I'm a paleobiologist, and so we're trying to use this as a way to figure out, uh, you know, what kind of physiology these animals had, warm-blooded, cold-blooded, did they migrate, were they up there year-round, who lived with them, those kinds of questions. Well, the question I have is that part of the landmass pretty much has stayed at 80 degrees. What's the latitude? It's up there? It's 70, 70 right yeah. It's 70 okay. right now, but it was 80. But, but it's but, pretty much stayed up there for most of the Earth's time, correct? Uh, yeah, at least for the, through the Cretaceous. So it was 85 degrees north back then. So it was actually the continent was shifted a little bit more north. And, uh, Farther north. But so, wouldn't it have been mostly tropical even in the winter? No, it, it actually wasn't tropical then. It was kind of like Juneau, Alaska. And so it okay. was, uh, you know, it was not the kind of environment you expect a lot of reptiles. I mean, we don't go up to Juneau and look for crocodiles and that kind of thing. 
Yeah, no, it was, it was, it was a serious challenge, uh, you know, a natural test of dinosaur physiology. And that's what we're trying to, you know, that's the net we're trying to crack. So, yeah, I remember uh, walking along, just the, the sheer volume of bones along the, the Colville River is pretty astonishing, <laughs> really. But I like it to uh, maybe more like Ketchikan, Alaska myself, Greg, but not Juno. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> but you had the great swings of darkness and light. Yes, there's still but, but it was... six months of darkness up there. And yeah. Uh, I, you know, and I've worked in the book with uh, Kirk Johnson and, you know, we, I did a lot of drawings based on what happened there. Uh, what, what explains the mass mortality of um, why are there so many bones along the Colville River? What are, what are your ideas in that? Because there's just hundreds, thousands of bones. Well, first of all, what's the ecosystem back then? Well, let's and do then, both those. Well, yeah. Yeah, well, it was a it was a floodplain. So we had, you know, the, the Brooks Range was just coming up. And so we had all these rivers coming down onto this huge floodplain, and that's where the dinosaurs lived, you know, basically near near the uh, ancient seaway there. Uh, and with regard to the Liscombe bone bed, so Liscombe bone bed is uh, made up almost entirely of an animal we name called a Grunelic, which is duck-billed dinosaur. And there's hundreds, if not thousands of them in, you know, just one big, big layer there. Uh, how they died in mass, we're not sure. It's uh, possible they were trying to cross a river or something and they all drowned. Uh, it, it, you know, we just we, we honestly just don't know. I have a silly idea. Uh oh. Yeah, thousands, tens of thousands migrated up there, just like uh, the wildebeest or uh, or the caribou. Tens of thousands, and then it got dark and cold, and they all died. <laughs> That's kind of silly, Dave. But yeah, they, uh... they, yeah, they just gave up. <laughs> As, as I always tell my students, it's never too late to give up. Yeah, that's <laughs> good to know. But wait, wait, but no, no, what I'm seriously, though, uh, they obviously established, uh, what, millions of years of, of living in that place? Or how do you know it wasn't a mass migration that happened one season and they got caught in the cold? Uh, well, uh, Pat and I just had a paper, and Pat and some of my colleagues, I should say, and we discovered uh, perinatal remains up there of almost every dinosaur species. Oh, so okay. we have, and so a perinate is uh, either an animal that's in the egg or just hatched out. And so we have tyrannosaurs, we have uh, a horned dinosaur called Pachyrhinosaurus, uh, little raptors, there's a big raptor up there, a troodon. Uh, we have a whole ecosystem. Yeah, there. exactly. And they're all nesting up there. And I did a study showing, uh, looking at like how long it took dinosaur eggs to incubate and a large dinosaur's uh, a small dinosaur's egg took about three months to hatch out and a large dinosaur like a duckbill dinosaur or a tyrannosaur their eggs probably took about four to five months to hatch out wow basically if you take that into account with the climatology up there they basically they there's no way they would have hatched out and had time to run for alberta for a warmer climate so they had right. to <laughs> yes yeah, so they basically had to stick it out i mean they're kind of like like moose or caribou today up there they had to just stick it out and so that's part of the mystery is, uh, the next question is how did they do it well my question too is you know when i was up there most of the bones that we were finding of a grunelock uh were juveniles and now your your new findings with pat uh and that other that's Another bone bed that you found up there, would you call that, that's actually not part of the Liskin bone bed. This is a separate bone bed. It's maybe the same age range, 70 million years-ish. Yeah, so probably the most exciting discovery we made is uh, most people have, had gone up there and they looked at the Liskin bone bed. I mean, it's just right. so many bones, you can't miss it. But there's that's about all you get is, is a right. Brunelic and then occasional shed Tyrannosaur teeth or Troodon teeth that fed upon them. Not much information. 
And so we discovered a bed up on a cliffside that uh, it's really hard to access. We repelled down to get down to it. And it's, it's amazing. We, it's called OJ Soros after what our, one of our colleagues we call OJ, uh, who basically discovered it. And uh, it's exciting because it has every species in it. It's, it's, wow. uh, it's, uh, it looks like uh, someone took a zoo and ran it through a Cuisinart. There's just bones of everything <laughs> in it. Uh, but it's really dangerous to access. And so that's, uh, so, so that's the one we're picking at right now. But it's revealing a lot about who actually lived there uh, and, in a, in a grand, on a grand scale. Well, I remember the, you know, I worried a lot about bears up there because uh, there are brown bears and, you know, the grizzlies. And then there's also polar bears in the same area. But really the thing you've got to watch out for in the Colville River is the slumping river side is what's going to get you. And I have a photograph of you that I took actually moments <laughs> after you fell. A whole section of the river fell down and you went down with it and almost tumbled into the water. Of course, I took the picture first and then went to help you. But, uh, but that, sure. but you get, that's, so in the, in the summertime, it's this slumping, uh, mud, basically. But that's how the guy died, though. The guy who found the first fossil, he died the following year of a, uh, buried in a landslide, right? You got to watch out for those overburdens. They will get you. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then Mr. Liskum did die, uh, from, uh, an avalanche, uh, I guess, at, in, was that along the Colville? Uh, I, yeah. I, I believe so. I, I just read the wiki about that. This ecosystem, do you have a beginning date and an end date? Uh, did it end with the end of the Cretaceous? And how long was it throughout the Maastrichtian? Or how long is this ecosystem up in the Arctic? Yeah, so the dinosaurs are coming out of sediments about 70 million years, or aged at about 70 million years ago. Uh, the formation actually goes all the way to the KPG boundary. Uh, but we haven't found any dinosaurs right uh, you know, at the time that the dinosaurs perished. But, uh, but most of the stuff's about 70 million. So five five million years. Yes. You haven't found stuff. Uh, this is earlier than T. Rex. So the Tyrannosaur that's up there is Nanuxaurus, and uh, the duckbill dinosaur is a Grunelluck. And actually, there's been pushback on whether or not a Grunelluck is a valid name. And even on Wikipedia, it says Nullum <laughs> Dubium. Greg, where do you stand on that, man? Well, we co-named it, so uh, I think what I think it's a valid taxon. Uh, so what, what they're ignoring is that we actually had not just juvenile bones that we named it. We actually have some adult bones that show features that uh, this is not uh, Edmontosaurus regalis, uh, which lived at the same time in Alberta, although they're close relatives. Uh, I've got a paper that uh, I presented at meetings, but I haven't published it yet, basically showing that this dinosaur only grew to about 20 feet in length. Uh, whereas Edmontosaurus regalis, that people think it is, uh, grew to 55 feet in length. So this is a whole, this is a stunted. This is a, this is a much smaller species. Uh, so I, I don't have any doubt it's a, a valid taxon, and I think in the end that'll be shown. But uh, scientists, uh, think, scientists like to argue. <laughs> yeah, they, they do, and that's how science progresses. And uh, I would like to see uh, Alaska get an official state uh, dinosaur, and I think a Grunelluck is a perfect candidate. Don't they have one? No. Wasn't it that uh, no. that governor, that governor who ran for vice president a while back? Yeah, well, there is that guy, but we do have an official state fossil. The official state fossil is the woolly mammoth, but we need a dinosaur, don't oh. you think so, Greg? I thought the official state fossil was Ray Troll, but okay. Hey! <laughs> oh. Thank you, Greg. Oh man, awesome. I, that, awesome, that was a dude. softball there, dude. <laughs> okay, hey, I want to move on to uh, just some. Uh, Bite meters and crocodilians bite and T-Rexes. Bite yeah. Bite-ometer. 
Um, there's a photo of you sticking a um, uh, a biteometer in the looks like the very back of a crocodile on on your Florida State University page. Uh, it's a saltwater crocodile. Seventeen. Yeah, it's with a... no teeth. It is literally is <laughs> a granny with no teeth. So did it try to gum you to death? <laughs> well, actually, when when crocs get older, they do start losing their teeth and don't get a back. Yeah, they, I know. Down here, they call them a gum bumper. It'll gum you to death. But yeah. uh, the animals we tested had all their back teeth. That's what matters for our testing. And was that up in Queensland where you did that? Uh, I, yeah, it was up in uh, yeah, it was up in um, Darwin, Australia. We tested the biggest crocodiles I've tested were uh, seventeen foot saltwater crocs, and. Uh, the highest bite force we got was 3,700 pounds, which is the you know the literally the world's record for anything that's ever been measured directly, uh, and it was uh, it was scary. So that that research is about understanding how what you know the, the working end of a crocodile uh, is basically the mouth, as my dad used to say, the working end. So trying to figure out how crocodiles tick, but then we also use it to understand the evolution of crocodiles while they're so successful, uh, and then carry it over to model how they generate their bite forces because. The musculature of a crocodile is very similar to a dinosaur. So we use those data to estimate the bite force of T-Rex. And uh, by reconstructing the, the musculature on a T-Rex using our data, uh, uh, we came up with a value of about 8,000 pounds of bite force. Wow. So it's like setting a couple pickup trucks on top of those jaws. So. Wow. You, you know, in, in researching this episode, I, I've, well, I learned a new word, extreme osteophagy. Is that correct? Is <laughs> yeah, it right? Yeah. Well, that's the ability to crush bones like hyenas and wolves do. Now, you propose a T-Rex could do it as well. And I saw a documentary where someone had welded what looked like a steel T-Rex skull with steel T-Rex teeth and, and bones. And the question is, in this documentary, the guy was crushing, you know, uncooked cow femurs. So these are massive bones. And they were, they were able to uh, just literally break and crush them and, and splinter them. So the question is, uh, how do we know that a T-Rex tooth would be as strong as these man-made steel teeth? I mean, the only fossils we have are 65 million years old. They'll, they'll crumble when you, uh, not crumble, but I, I've held T-Rex teeth. You don't want to drop one, is what I'm saying. Is there any sort of a comparative anatomy that you, you say, okay, well, a croc, is this tooth is this strong, so a T-Rex, while it was alive, had to be that strong? Yeah, so... One of my first papers uh, was on uh, T-Rex bite marks, and uh, I studied a pelvis of a triceratops that uh, was brought into the Museum of the Rockies by a uh, Lutheran, Lutheran pastor named Ken Olson. He brought it in. I saw that photo. Yeah, yeah, and it's just got it has 80, of these, 80 of these holes in it. It looked, like wow. some, it looked like Clifford the Big Red Dog had worked it over. Somebody had machine gunned <laughs> it. And so he asked me what I thought it was, and I said, well, only two things could have done this, a crocodile or a T-Rex. And so I... I took uh, dental putty from I got went to my dentist and he gave me some dental putty because I want to copy some teeth and I pushed it down into the some of the holes and pulled it out and they're exact replicas of T Rex teeth. Wow, that's cool! So, really? So it, it definitely could bite right through bone, no problem. Uh, uh, my father did a study one time uh, for uh, a court defense in uh, Yellowstone where someone had been killed by a bear and back then they had uh, steel coolers, you know, Stanley coolers. And that bear had torn that apart, so I mean, they can bite through steel too. I, I don't doubt. Right. I don't doubt the T Rex could rip the hood off a car, <laughs> no problem. Right. If it's oh, around, so, so I wouldn't be safe in the car then. Oh, good to know. So, is <laughs> no. a T Rex, especially if you're a lawyer? <laughs> yeah, right. The lawyers <laughs> always get it. Is it so? The crocodiles, crocodile bite force versus T Rex bite force, which is stronger? 
The highest bite force is in a crocodile we got is about 3,700 pounds, and okay. T-Rex is around 8,000 pounds. Okay, all right. All so, right. Just uh, wanted to clarify that. That is incredible. Yeah. You don't want to get bit by either of them is what my feeling would be. But. So where do you stand on the scavenger versus predator uh, you know, and versus opportunistic thing with T-Rex? Well, so T-Rex did both. So we have... We have cases where uh, we have lots of duckbill dinosaurs, bone beds, very much like the Liscombe, but also with Edmontosaurus, where you know lived with T. Rex, and clearly, you know, hundreds, thousands of these animals died in a drought or something, and then T. Rex scavenged them. We find tooth marks and shed teeth all the time from T. Rex. But recently, there's been some uh, fossils of uh, duckbill dinosaurs that have uh, bite marks in them from T. Rex. In fact, in one case, there's a uh, tailbone of a Edmontosaurus that has a broken T-Rex teeth in it. Oh, it's in actually it. so, in it. Wow, yeah. Yeah, and so, and it healed, so it survived. So uh, oh. it definitely acted as a predator and a scavenger. Uh, so it did both, but that's not, that's not unusual. Vultures will actually kill small animals, and lions are more than happy to scavenge hyena kills and that kind of thing. So what is a predator? What is a scavenger? I, I designate it as, uh, what, what is it, how does it get the majority of its meals? That's the way I look at it. Well, it's an opportunist, really. Yeah, and and so some of the some of the bite mark studies uh, basically once we we discovered what tyrannosaur bite marks looked like, people started going around looking for you know who got bitten and that kind of thing. And the general profile seems to be, and, and also from uh, actually I should back up, also from the fecal matter we call coprolites. You could see what they ate as well, the bones and things. And uh, what we see in most tyrannosaur fecal matter, and also most of the bite mark instances are younger animals getting bitten. Uh, so, I mean, th that's what a predator does. Uh, a scavenger is going to eat anything it finds that's dead, but there seems to be a, uh, they seem to have a propensity to go after younger, more naive animals. So I personally think T-Rex was probably a predator, uh, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a quantitative thing. It's not an easy question to get at. Well, that's, um, you know, being the son of a bear biologist, you must know that yeah, bears go after, they'll go after the young ones and the old ones too. But, uh, the really old ones, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Most predators will go after what's easy. Uh, so you know, why take take the risk of hurting yourself when you take out the, you know, the young naive individuals in the herd versus trying to take on say a full grown triceratops or something. I don't doubt that occurred, that that occurred once in a while. But this is just what predators do. So anyway, I personally think T. Rex was probably more of a predator than a scavenger. But you know, it's it's just a really you know, it's, you're asking a lot of us. It's forensic science. Uh, and, I, and we're doing it, you know, 65 million years ago. So yeah, 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 no, it was really cool. Don't have much to work with. Yeah. <laughs> Which leads me to wonder, now, did you figure out the bite force of a hadrosaur? I mean, we don't really care, but, you know, we, we like the idea of crunching bone, <laughs> but uh, has uh, this data been extrapolated uh, with a hadrosaur? No, we haven't done that with uh, herbivores like that. So hadrosaurs bit down and they kind of ground their tooth to the sides. Like it's the same with like horses. It's like I don't really know what the bite force of a horse is. We can estimate it and that kind of thing. But they're they're not just biting down; they're grinding sideways. There's more to it. It's a more dynamic motion. Right. Uh, a tyrannosaur biting is more like a pair of scissors. It's just you know just closing down on something. And same with crocodiles. It's easy to measure. It's a little hard. It's a little harder to quantify or make sense out of what a herbivore is doing. Sure. When it's grinding. I, I... 
didn't think about a cow chewing its cud and yeah, but side to side motion. We had uh, Karen Chin on a couple episodes ago, and she was talking about some of the work she's done with uh, the coprolites with uh, hadrosaurs. And she had found a lot of tree material actually in the coprolites that they were. And crabs. And they were crab, eating but, crabs. But also, I mean, uh, hadrosaurs could could eat a tree or, or uh, you know, pine cones or. They ate a lot of really rough stuff. Well, or she, you're shaking she your said head. Rotting. It was rotting. It was trees. rotting trees. Yes, but uh, what did those herds of herbivores? What did the uh, duckbills eat, Greg? Well, as near as we can tell, they just ate about any kind of plant matter they could find. Uh, we have some evidence from stomach contents and fecal matter. Like, you know, some of Karen's wonderful work. Uh, you know, showing them eating eating tree bark and tree matter, uh, conifer needles. I mean, you name it. Uh, they, they could eat it. And, you know, with that pulverizing dentition, I don't think there was too many plants that they couldn't, uh, you know, make use of. Uh, so I, I would just say just about anything green they ate and also, I guess, some crabs or something. <laughs> so. You've done a whole lot of documentaries uh, over the years, um, and you're doing one now that we can't really talk too much about, but they'll be coming out soon. Um, but you were approached uh, via Supercroc. And I know that our friend Gary Staub actually sculpted that beast. And there was kind of a, a, a turning point for you there when uh, they were the ones that uh, somehow uh, suggested maybe the bike force thing would be cool to film. Yeah, what happened was uh, I just I was a brand new professor. I just got here at Florida State and they called me up and they said, uh, we're doing this documentary on this incredible crocodile that Paul Serino from University of Chicago had found. and they had about 30 minutes of footage in the field uh, of them digging it up. Then some footage of Gary building this incredible model of it. But they, they needed, back then they did two-hour documentaries. This is a National Geographic wow. special. And so they needed some more footage. And so they'd seen the – I'd estimated the bite forces of T-Rex from Bite Marks, working with some engineers at Stanford. And so they asked me if I could do that with a super croc. And I said, well, no, I don't have any bite marks. And I said, I know how to do it, though. And they said, oh, well, how do you do it? And I said, well, if we, if we test the bite forces of all the living crocodiles uh, and we can scale that up to uh, what the super croc could do. And they said, oh, that's fantastic. Will you do it? And I said, no. And I go, why not? <laughs> and I go, well, I don't, I don't have any money to do it. It's like, yeah, it's just an idea I have. Uh, and of course, they said, oh, well, we have grants. Of course, I knew that. I go, oh, really? <laughs> oh, so they, yes, really? <laughs> I mean, the dean, I, I just said, look, the dean doesn't want me doing anything that's not bringing him money. And so what happened was they go, we'll send you a grant, a grant application. Uh, could you fill it out tonight? And I said, sure. So I filled it out. I sent it back to them. And literally, one day later, they go, hey, congratulations, you got your grant. And so, <laughs> and so it was the easiest grant I ever got. And the dean was happy because I was bringing him money and it was going to be on TV. And so they basically funded uh, the development of the bite force meter. So I worked it with some engineers that I'd worked with at Stanford and Cornell and uh, and whatnot. We uh, and also the company that makes the force transducers. And we came up with a design. And uh, I think we had to throw this together really quick and uh, to get ready for their film. And you know, a month later, here I am testing these things, not even knowing what was going to happen. I mean, people don't stick things like that in the mouth of a crocodile very often or an alligator. Um, did you invent or develop the bite meter? Yeah, I, or, uh, or improve upon it? I, we no, I worked. Yeah, together, you know, a bunch of engineers uh, and, right. and myself worked on designing it. Uh, 
frankly, you know, when I, the first, the first day I did, it was terrifying because, you know, I go up to 11 foot alligator and, you know, we pull it out of its, its pen. This is at the St. Augustine alligator farm in, um, in St. Augustine, Florida, uh, St. Augustine alligator farm, zoological park, they call themselves now. And they have every species. So I approached wow. them and they were okay with me testing them. And I remember going up to the 11 foot crocodile or 11 foot alligator. The you know, first time I tested a big animal, I didn't know what was going to happen. It was terrifying. You know, I was young and stupid back then, but you know, I, I, I literally, as I was putting it in, I was thinking it's going to hit that thing. I'm going to go flying away like Wile E. Coyote or something. I don't know what's going right. to happen here. Uh, right. Fortunately it worked. And uh, so we were able to test uh, every species of crocodilian and, uh, Got some wonderful data. It was uh... well. I'm I'm looking at a graph, a an image that we're going to put on the website. It's the press release for this, and it's um, literally a bite force uh, on one side and body mass on the other, and a, it's got the skull of every crocodile, gharial, alligators, caimans, uh, all the way uh, on the right hand side is the giant. Uh, what is it? Suco. Sarcosuchus. Sarcosuchus. Yeah, and, and a picture of a man, a little tiny man next to it, <laughs> That's with uh, a bite force of what looks to be <laughs> twenty three thousand pounds per square inch of this sarcosuchus. So that'd be like, uh, yeah. So that's what we estimated for them, and it'd, it'd be like taking. Uh... A semi tractor, you know, a Mack truck, take the the front yeah. end of it, and dropping that on those jaws. That's how much force wow. it was generating. Wow. Uh, and also the tooth pressures we figured out from that study too. So uh, crocodiles, big crocodiles, uh, and and T Rex generated. What's a mugger? I never heard of that. A mugger. A mugger. Yeah. What's a mugger? <laughs> what is that? It's a crocodile or a gharial? It's a, a man eating crocodile from uh, Indonesia or from uh, India. A mugger. Wow, I like the name. So it's a salty then? No, it's 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 more of a freshwater kind of creature. Right, right. Well, I'm curious, Greg. Uh, you say uh, there's a quote from you here uh, from somewhere on the internet. I refer to our largest bite force meter as an expensive eleven thousand dollar bathroom scale, since it mimics <laughs> the design of the best bathroom scales. How do you actually stick something like a bathroom scale into a crocodile's mouth and get them? I mean, is it baited, or do you like? Are the is the croc restrained and you stick something near it? Well, first of all, that uh, one of your questions, uh, we don't bait them. I'm the bait. Uh, oh, that works okay. just fine. <laughs> so, so what we do, we're working in a zoo uh, or even with wild animals. We uh, we catch them, we throw a noose around them and pull them out, and uh, basically drag them up onto shore and secure them, uh, hold them down, and uh, they're 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 mad as a motor scooter at this point. And uh, so then you, uh, you basically just uh, we come up and I, I you come in real low and you just you put the bite meter on their on their teeth and they'll slam it. Uh, they can't see the meter coming in. They see me coming in, but if you keep it low, they 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 can't, when they're on land like that, they can't see it coming. As soon as it touches their jaws, it's they it's just just a reflex and they just explode. But you do the back of the mouth, not the front, right? Yeah. So where, where the molars would be if there were molars on the front. Yeah. So the back teeth are called malariform teeth, and those are the crushing oh. teeth. The fulcrum, the closer you get to a fulcrum, uh, the jaw joint is the highest bite, right. highest force. So we can we can estimate the force all the way around the jaw. I just need it taken at some point. We always do it at the back of the jaw. Oh, wow. It's uh, it's exciting. And with all of these crocs, did you even get close to getting bit or uh, in danger? I've almost... Uh... I've almost lost an arm or leg here and there. That's a fact, but I've, uh, I have been bitten, but not by a big one. Huh. Right. So when they bite down, are they uh, clamping down and they don't let go or is there a snap? 
Yeah, so that's a really good question. Uh, what they do is they hammer it. So let's say let's say we do an 11 foot alligator. It'll hit that thing at about with 2,000 pounds of force, literally a ton. Uh, and they'll what they'll do is they'll hold onto it and uh, they'll lighten up their force. We have computers hooked up onto this and they'll lighten up their force to about 10% of that. So they're holding it about 200 pounds. And if you move the meter, it, they'll hit it again, like from a, like even even oh, in a clinch, wow. and it'll go right back to 2,000. And they'll do that for like 20 minutes. And so what we figured out is that's probably mimicking how they, uh, basically how they feed. So if an alligator gets a hold of a deer, it basically it has to have a lot of force. It has to have hundreds of thousands of pounds of tooth pressure to puncture the hide. They basically get it, they secure the animal. And they try to drag it into the water and drown it. Now when they're when once they've done their initial bite, that puncture. Uh, they hold it at about 10%, but if the animal struggles, they'll hit it again and reassert themselves. And so I think it's just mimicking their actual, uh, the way they actually feed wow. in the wild. Wow. And then That's, uh, my, that's my, grim. My, I'm just, oh, man. <laughs> yeah. And so my, my graduate student, Paul Genak, he's at uh, Oklahoma State University. Uh, and he, uh, he modeled the, he looked at the musculature on alligators and crocs, and he basically showed that they have dark muscle and white muscle, uh, uh kind of like, uh, you know, uh, a turkey, a like a turkey's leg muscles are, are dark. And then you, then you have these white muscles and basically what and that's based on function. Yeah, exactly. And so the, the darker muscles, they can, you know, they've, they've got excellent uh, vascularization and, uh, and whatnot, and and so they can they, they basically can use those muscles to hold for a long time. The, most of the muscles in an alligator or crocodile are the white muscles. They're just made for for you know explosive uh, movements, but they, they they use that ten percent to just hold. And so it's really neat. It, we call it muscle gearing. So finding out what the different uh, you know muscle types do. And would you extrapolate that to a T Rex jaw yeah, just... and its musculature? Uh, we don't think uh, so. T Rex probably didn't do this holding thing. So the, the studies I've done on their bite marks show it's called puncture and pull feeding. So they they bite very deeply into uh, right. flesh and bone, and then they pull straight back and cut it out, uh, pulverizing bone and you know, <laughs> everything when they did it. And so it's kind of oh a kind God. of a kind of a hit and run strategy. It's more like what a Komodo dragon would do or a white shark. They right. don't they don't hold on. They just hit and run. So take a chunk of cheese and bite into it and pull it out. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, rip and tear. But maybe <laughs> a T Rex. Uh, I'm just imagining the big uh, sort of dark meat section on a on a T Rex. Hmm. But uh, maybe they were. You mean for Thanksgiving? Yes, for Thanksgiving. But uh, the if I want that thigh muscle bit. But the uh, would they hold on to their predator their prey with their feet with their legs those useless little arms do nothing but with their feet yeah i think they would, a weapon. Yeah, i mean a lot of a lot of predatory birds do that they'll uh they'll pin down their prey with their feet and then they'll just rip yeah. at it and kill it they'll do that with smaller prey uh i think when a tyrannosaur took on a very large prey item like uh, a duckbill dinosaur that's just a hit and run strategy they're just trying to create a gaping wound and hope the animal bleeds to death and that's kind of what we're seeing uh, I think anything small just got consumed in its entirety. We're not going to find a record of it anyway. Wow. <laughs> I'm, lo I'm loving this gruesome talk. Yeah, there's <laughs> going to be a lot of good sound effects in this one, I think. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Ray, do you want to uh, ask your question? What question is that, Dave? Greg? If you could time travel, if you could go back into the past, you can only go back, not forward, 
what epic epoch, what favorite paleo period would you go back to? What would you time travel back to and what would you want to see, sir? I get asked that a lot. I would, uh, I'd take my time machine. I'd probably go back and uh, put all my money on Secretariat uh, to win my uh, <laughs> 20, 26 furlongs. And then I'd get okay. more. Okay, so then, you do horse race. So, right. so, no, let's go for the other back. <laughs> I'd take all that money and get an even better, better time machine. And then I'd go. <laughs> uh, no, I would like, no, of course, I would love to, I, I guess, uh, I guess I'd like to go back to, uh, the Cretaceous, late Cretaceous, uh, maybe just before uh, the asteroid impact and all that kind of thing. I think, you know, st study the animals, uh, see what they're really doing and, you know, test our theories, you know, and then uh, maybe see what happened afterward, I guess. So somewhere around there. Would you be bold enough to try a bite meter on an actual T-Rex? <laughs> uh, that's what grad students are for. <laughs> I was going to say, did you lose any grad students on the crocodile testing? But <laughs> anyways, well, thank you. That's, that's cool, man. You have time traveling back. I think David has a, a profound question for you, Greg. So get yeah, ready. Yeah. Get ready. Yeah. So um, now as a comedian, uh, I received my job approval instantly. So if the audience is laughing or laughing hard, I know I'm performing at my best. Now, if I'm receiving chuckles or groans or worse, crickets, right? I know I need to up my game right then and there on the spot. Now, my job is one of the few occupations where job approval is instant. Um, for a scientist, the hallmark of job approval is being peer-reviewed, and it's the way science has its own checks and balances. So you have a plethora of papers with your name. Now, can you go through the process, how you come up with a topic, the length of time it takes to author it, and what the submission process is all the way to publication in 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 six seconds or less. So, what, what what I do is I try to look for things that I can learn from bones and teeth, and I try to look for uh, you know something I can learn about an animal's feeding, something about its biology, whatever, uh, using what materials I have, and then I try to uh, prove it in living animal that if you did this, you could actually derive that. Well, for example, g give me a give us a topic. Uh, for instance, uh, you know uh, determining. Uh, you know, well, the bite forces, for instance, if we can if we can model these these muscles, I can predict the bite force, and therefore, in theory, I could carry it over to a dinosaur. Uh, so that's part of it. Usually, our studies take about I don't know, sometimes eight or ten years before we finally get the answer. Uh, really? And what's really crazy is when you make a scientific discovery, you're the first person on the planet to ever know that piece of information. And of course, you're excited about it. And what do you do? You immediately run next door and tell your neighbor. No, the whole world knows. <laughs> so, and, and so, uh, you know, then we, then you submit it for peer review and hope that uh, the rest of the world, you know, uh, accepts it. And, and that's it's, it's it's a slow process. It's not like sports where, uh, you know, like a heavyweight heavyweight boxer goes in and they know on that date when they're going yeah. in whether they're going to be champ or not. They either they are or they're not. Uh, in our business. But when you say peer reviewed, when you say peer reviewed, does that mean? Five scientists say thumbs up, or one scientist says thumbs up. Uh, yeah, or? it's usually usually between three and five reviewers, uh, people that weren't part of the project, obviously, and are not your colleagues or friends. Right. And then right. the editor also has a say on it too. Uh, yeah, and it's it's yeah, it really it's uh, 
you know, sometimes it doesn't work out, but uh, I've had pretty good luck with some of my papers and people seem excited about it. And then after that, the fun part is doing what we're doing right now is just, I like to, I, I'm a teacher. Um, I want to, I want to teach the scientific method to the masses and dinosaurs are our children's first introduction to science. And so I see it as a really, a, a very useful vehicle to uh, teach the scientific method to people. And whether they become a scientist or not, I don't, it doesn't matter. The point is when someone tells you something, ask for the data in support of it. That's just good life skills, no matter what you go into, yeah. be it business or science. And so I try to, and, and so the fun part is once you, uh, particularly in dinosaurs, you know, get a lot of attention. So it's a great, uh, we, we have a lot more opportunity to talk to the public about science and how we do things. Uh, and, uh, I, and I just, I just love that. And, and I, and so this is the fun part. Uh, I find from teaching, I get more, uh, like I would not want to be a pure researcher. I want to be a teacher. Uh, well, it's no fun. Yeah. It's boring. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but when I teach, I, I look into the eyes of some of these, uh, you know, being a kid or, 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 you know, a college student or whatever, getting and they see them getting excited about what I'm talking about. And it reminds me how I got here. It's like, hey, I used to be excited about this too. <laughs> so right, 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 it kind, right. It kind of, I don't know, it kind of, it kind of energizes me and kind of keeps me going. Yeah, I've heard that your uh, some of your lectures are sort of like rock concerts, man. Sort of like the Rolling Stones, and Greg's up there with the headphones. You have a thousand students, and you work in the crowd. But one of the things that you get too, as a professor, you've been at Florida State University for many years now. You get the old instant feedback with the rate my professor thing too. So I'm imagining that you have uh, turned a lot of kids, a lot of younger people, onto the wonders of paleontology and. And I do really admire what you've done. Uh, you do a lot of work with kids, too. You do. Uh, you go out, talk to elementary schools as well, Greg? Paying it forward. Yeah. All the time. Yeah. Now I, that's uh, actually the most rewarding things I've ever done or has been going out to talk to kids. And uh, a few years ago, I talked it up in Birmingham, Alabama, and I was talking to a bunch of uh, children that had cancer. And it was just to see them smile for a minute, it was just uh, brought tears to my eyes. Like right now, I'm kind of crying thinking about it. And that was probably the most rewarding thing I've ever done in my life. Uh, and I, I was just happy that I was able to get them to, you know, bring, you know, bring some happiness to some really sad kids. Cool. That's brilliant. Well, this has been great. This has been wonderful. Yeah. I was also going to just add that uh, on the peer reviewed thing, um, it is, uh, it's cool to try to uh, get the, general public to understand the scientific process and what happens when you publish a paper. And one of the things is that the peer review, you don't know the people that are reviewing your paper, right? They're supposed to be kept kind of hush-hush. So usually people don't sign their reviews, so you don't know who it was. Uh, sometimes, oh, you, sometimes you can, sometimes you can roughly figure it out, but uh, yeah, it no, out, it's, yeah. It's, no, it's, it's blind review. Uh, it's just, it's just that's great. It's just, but it's, it's checks just, and balances. It's brilliant. Hey, Greg, man, it was great having you on the show. It's so good to see you after all these years. I hope to uh, get back in the field uh, someday with you before I have to. I want to go to the Colville. Uh, yeah, river. the Colville, the Coldville River, and I want to do it before I have to use a walker to get down to the riverside. But uh, hey, man, it's great, great hanging again. Looking forward to your next paper. Yeah, Ray, it's really great seeing you too. And I, uh, well, we'll run into each other again. I hope, and uh, hopefully out in the field. But uh, and David, thank you so much for having me. This is wonderful and. Well, oh, thank so, you. It's been brilliant. Oh, thank you. Over and out. Goodbye. <laughs> well, that was fun, huh? Yeah, yeah. I, I want to go to the Colville River up there in Alaska. You know, if you go and Google Earth it, it, you can see it in 3D. Those bluffs are massive that 
fall into the river. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's 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 a pretty incredible stretch of uh, Cretaceous stuff. That's yeah, just from seventy million years ago. But there's so much to find up there. But it's so very very hard to get to it. You can't just drive there, Dave. You got to know somebody. So what did you take a plane from Barrow uh, and then land on some strip out there? Well, we what? drove up the Hall Road, all the way up the Hall Road, which is the road uh, that goes to uh, Prudhoe Bay. Which is about 50 miles to the west. Yeah. East, and east, 50 miles to the east. You uh, drive up to about, there's a couple of air services. You drive up there and then you park your car and then you get in a very small airplane. And... But you wait. But you drive from Barrow, you mean, or are you from Fairbanks? No, no, no. We we drove from Fairbanks all the way up. Oh, yeah. across the Brooks Range. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was a great. That must be amazing. It's all in the Fossil Coastline book, which I know you've read. Uh, Ray, I've read all your books and I've forgotten. Them I guess all as apparently well. you have, Dave. But that's all right. I, I, I still because like can it. I be honest? Can I be honest? I, I look at the pictures. Well, that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> I love your artwork. Anyways, I love your we took uh, uh, the minivan up there, and uh, you drive up to a place. Uh, we went to uh, uh, a small little airstrip up there, and then flew in to the Colville River, and you land on a gravel bar on the river. On the river, and then from there, it's inflatables and that kind of thing. And it's quite a production. Right. And uh, Pat, so it's not a. It's- it's like a 30-minute flight then. It's really, it's a short flight from... Uh, no, Bay. it was about an hour flying over. Really? Yeah, no, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's quite a, it's quite a ways. 100 miles, wow. And then uh, you uh, land on that gravel strip and uh, uh, Pat Druckenmiller and uh, Greg Erickson have been going up there for more than a decade. I went with them uh, many years ago. How long did you stay there? We were there for, uh, I think, about six days on the gravel bar. Oh, so a whole camping out yeah. and you had to bring your food and... Did you see any bears or, or no? There were lots of bear have... footprints all over the place, but uh, right. they warned us not to uh, bring too much, uh, you know, beverages, you know, because that really uh, weighs things down. That we would actually uh, do a uh, drink the river water, we'd process it, and kind of put it through filters. Right. But we found so much stuff; it was it was incredible. Well, I went camping with some novices up in uh, the redwoods up in California, and. When the guy says, you know, there's bears up there, I said, yeah, I know. My friend says, what? Bears? Well, how, how do we keep the bears away? And the guy says, well, make sure that right before you get into your sleeping bag, you rub yourself with bacon, grease, and honey. <laughs> and they went, oh, thank you so much. And I went, guys, did you hear what he just said? <laughs> they were so they were not paying attention. Yeah, well, bears. They were not paying attention. Uh, my my uh, wife, Michelle, had uh, we saw a bear and two cubs, mama bear and two cubs, came just stroll, In your yard. strolling up the driveway the other day and yeah. walked right across the, you know, the, the porch. Well, you train them to get your mail. Yeah, right? yeah, that's a good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, no, we live in bear country. But, yeah, Greg Erickson flies all the way from Florida State University all the way up to uh, Alaska wow. pretty much every summer and goes out there with uh, the University of Alaska Fairbanks crew. And um, they continue to publish cool stuff. And uh, the whole thing about the nesting baby dinosaurs, that's a paper that came out yeah. this year. That is so and, cool. And uh, yeah, it's cool. Well, look, um, I I really want to go do some more field work, uh, and hopefully next year when uh, when maybe hopefully life will get back to normal. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about 2022. Mm-hmm. That's next year. Mm-hmm. We're still in 2021, and uh, 
that that would be wild. I I miss the far north of Alaska. It really is a magical place, isn't it? I mean, when you go really high latitude anywhere in the yeah, planet. Yeah, the thing about the Colville, there's not a tree to be seen, but uh, that Arctic light is there's nothing else like it. Yeah, and uh, it, this, you have the eternal. As Barry daylight. Lopez said, "It's rarefied air." Is it all right? Hey, well, on that note, David, I'm going to sign off for beautiful Ketchikan, Alaska, by the sea. And uh, where it's starting to rain again. Well, I'm going to sign off from Ojai, California, where our reservoir is down to 20% <laughs> and no sign of any water anywhere. Mm. Let's uh, bioengineer something, work something out. I'll ship you some water. All right, and I'll seed the clouds. Thanks. <laughs> All right. <laughs> See you, See you man. Thanks for being a paleo nerd. Help us spread the word of science. Rate us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can even email your questions and comments to nerds at paleonerds.com. Did you know each episode is paired with pictures and links? Check out paleonerds.com for photographic evidence that everyone here has been a paleo nerd for a long, long time. I'm a paleo nerd. I'm a paleo nerd.